Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Great conversation today. Jim Zub joins us to not only talk about the weekly Avengers event that's coming up uh, in uh, January. I think it's January. And uh, will be co-written by Al Ewing and Mark Wade, but uh, also to talk about Wayward and Glitterbomb, his wonderful creator-owned comics. I really think Jim has proven himself at Marvel uh, writing uh, Thunderbolts and Uncanny Avengers, and really looking forward to this uh, event. But also, Jim shares his experiences as a uh, creator of creator-owned comics, uh, does it on his Tumblr account, also does it at his website, and is always there to answer questions. And uh, sometimes those questions get kind of nasty, which I think is pretty lousy. But uh, the great thing is Jim uh, turns the other cheek and I think uh, will turn a very negative question that might be filled with some sort of anger or jealousy and uh, turns it into a positive thing. And I'm always impressed by his, um, you know, uh, ability to diffuse a a nasty question and uh, manage to answer back with some real pertinent information that any creator that is trying to get going in the creator-owned comic business or even the uh, mainstream business can find uh, good information from Jim. It was great to talk to him back in March. He's uh, back now uh, because of the Avengers event, but also uh, to re-examine, again, what he's been doing in creator-owned comics. Uh, Glitterbomb in particular, I love this book. Uh, It is a very prescient book because I think it addresses a lot of the sexual harassment issues of the day and was doing it certainly before the Harvey Weinstein uh, dam broke, and uh, now it really has become part of the everyday conversation in terms of the treatment of women. Uh, That's dovetailed into the comic book business with the firing of Eddie Berganza lately at DC Comics, and some people have asked me what what my feelings are about this. Um, They're obvious. I'm against harassment of any uh, gender, race, uh, sexual orientation, anything you can think of where you could be mean or abusive to another human being. I mean, this is, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really sad that, uh, you know, this isn't already a given, but there are jerks out there, and at least these jerks are being outed and uh, getting what they deserve. I'm, I'm sad because I think some of these people include uh, comedians that I've been fans of, Louis C.K., Al Franken, varying degrees of, of uh, you know, uh, harassment, but harassment nonetheless. And uh, then, you know, you go on to uh, certainly Eddie Berganza, who I was no fan of um, in particular. And certainly I had heard the rumors as well. Never heard uh, any concrete story of uh, a victim themselves. But uh, I'm glad that this stuff has come to light. And I'm glad that uh, the abusers are getting what they deserve. Uh, and, And again, I hope it's a life lesson that is passed on to the next generation that this behavior will lessen. Um, I think there, unfortunately, will always be creeps, but at least, hopefully, the victims of such creeps will have the courage to step forward, call these people out, and justice will be served. That's all I can say about it. Nothing more profound than that. On to uh, more pleasant uh, topics. It's Thanksgiving week. I love Thanksgiving. Again, man, there's Thanksgiving. I always have to point this out. Uh, Certainly had uh, an inauspicious uh, origin uh, you know, white, white settlers here in America pushing Native Americans uh, away from their land. That's the beginnings of the uh, of the Pilgrim, uh, you know, experience. And uh, that's too bad. I'm glad that Thanksgiving has morphed into an inclusive holiday 
that I do believe that a lot of people celebrate with genuine sincerity, and I try to as well. I'm not as big of a Christmas guy. I mean, I, I appreciate the spirit of Christmas. I don't want to come off like a Scrooge. But to me, Thanksgiving is the more uh, inclusive holiday where we all get together. We, we thank each other for uh, our, our lot in life and uh, to our friends and family for being a part of it. And that includes yourself, to me, the Word Balloon listeners, uh, for enriching uh, what I try to do here by the wonderful feedback I get from all of you in person, online, in emails. And I can't thank you enough for uh, believing in what I'm trying to do here and supporting me uh, both uh, by listenership and uh, certainly, of course, your subscriptions through Patreon. So, as always, I thank you very, very much, League of Word Balloon listeners, for your support uh, on this show and this uh, great experiment. And I'm happy to uh, continue it today with a great conversation that I think is informative and entertaining with Jim Zub on today's Word Balloon. Can you hear my uh, my dryer spinning in the background? I'm not blending uh, frappes or I'm not making uh, any uh, smoothies or anything like that while we're talking. So if you can hear the appliance in the background, that's what it is. Today's Word Balloon is brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. There are some really great trades that uh, are coming up now. Uh, available at reasonable uh, discounts at in-stock trades, really is uh, bigger discounts than I think you might be expecting. Things like uh, Nick Fury, trade paperback, deep cover, James Robinson at his best, uh, exploring the uh, new career of young Nick Fury, the son of the original Nick Fury, as he uh, goes to the uh, French Riviera. Uh, Frankie Noble is in the story. It's, it's so good. I really enjoy it. Um, this first volume is available now, 136 pages, 50% off. It's just $8.99. How about Batman Year 2? Do you remember Batman Year 2? I certainly do. Mike Barr, Alan Davis. Um, the Reaper is uh, the uh, bad guy. And frankly, uh, this was kind of almost uh, a precursor to the Batman Mask of the Phantasm story. It's Mike Barr, Alan Davis, Todd McFarlane, and it covers... Uh, Detective 575 and 578, through through 578, excuse me, and also Batman Full Circle, number one. 176 pages, uh, an early uh, 80s classic. 30% off its 14, I guess mid-80s classic. $14.99 from in-stock trades. What else can I tell you about? Challengers of the Unknown by Jack Kirby. It's about time this finally came out. Uh, this collects Showcase 6, 7, 11, and 12. And the first eight issues of the solo Challengers of the Unknown uh, book. Uh, to me, it's always been the precursor to the Fantastic Four. I think that's subject to debate, but I don't think you can deny it uh, from a dynamic action standpoint. Where Kirby's mind was career-wise uh, in the uh, years and months leading up to uh, the, uh, the collaboration with Stanley and Fantastic Four. But uh, it's 45% off. It's $16.49, and I don't know, I'm, I've always been a Challengers of the Unknown fan, probably because, again, it, it, it started in the hands of Jack Kirby. There's I Am Groot, a neat uh, little uh, book from uh, Christopher Hastings, and uh, this book is, uh, it collects the miniseries I Am Groot, but uh, it's a fun uh, all-ages book, and uh, certainly Groot is the, Baby Groot is the uh, breakout character of Guardians, and uh, that's hilarious, but uh, 112 pages, 48, uh, 45% off. It's uh, $9.89 at InStockTrades.com. There's lots more. We'll tell you about them 
on the other side of uh, this conversation with Jim Zub. But uh, you owe it to yourself now that we are in, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Christmas shopping doesn't begin until Thanksgiving week. Black Friday, Cyber Monday, local business, uh, local shop Saturday, all of that. Um, Really, when you think about it, in-stock trades represents all those things. They are a local business uh, that has done good and continues to serve the uh, comic book community with great books at great prices. Uh, I am proud to, uh, to have them as one of my sponsors because I believe in their service and uh, what they do. Uh, so uh, Christina and then Cameron, the uh, the wonderful power team behind In Stock Trades and Discount Comic Book Service, thank you very much for your support. And, uh, you know, again, uh, the best way to share what they do is uh, let you guys know about these great deals. So check it out for yourself, InStockTrades.com. All right, without uh, further ado, let's get into our conversation with Jim Zub. Talking about, uh, like I said, his books, Glitter Bomb, a very prescient book. I, I didn't mention it earlier, but of course, with all the uh, sexual harassment stuff going on, uh, man, Jim was right on top of this subject, and we get into that as well. Uh, certainly, especially in the first arc of Glitter Bomb, but uh, it continues to be such an interesting book. And uh, if you like great Vertigo books, uh, I think uh, this book easily would have been a Vertigo book if. Uh, you know, Shelley Bond had seen it, uh, or, uh, you know, Karen Berger when she was still running Vertigo, some of the great people behind Vertigo. But uh, luckily, Jim is uh, doing it through Image and uh, hopefully uh, continues to get more readership through his Marvel work. Uh, you know, Uncanny Avengers has been great, and uh, we can't wait for it to dovetail into the Avengers book that he is doing with um, Al Ewing and Mark Wade. We get into that in our conversation now. Here's Jim Zub on Word Balloon. It's happening again. It, it's happening again, Jim Zub. I'm, I'm really glad because um, we talked. We talked this year, right? It was earlier this year that we had we our did, first. We talked. I think we talked in. I uh, want to say March or April. That makes sense because yeah, it was right before shit went down in uh, Secret Empire. Right, and it was funny because uh, I told you at the time I said we'll have more to talk about later this year, and you were like, "Oh, mysterious." <laughs> and here we are, no surrender. Well, I, yeah, because I was already I was already working on Avengers by that point. I just couldn't tell anybody. That was the crazy part. Understood. I've been working on I've been working on Avengers No Surrender since first week of February. Very cool. Yeah, you know, I kind of want to hear uh, what into what went into this collaboration with Wade and Al. And you know, all right, so Avengers No Surrender. First of all, welcome back. Thanks for coming. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. And and so let's let's get into the event right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. 16 weeks of Avengers. All the other Avenger books kind of during this event. I've been avoiding using the term event, not because I don't think it warrants it. But just because I think it it doesn't follow the kind of typical format that that readers may be used to when that nomenclature get you gets used. Sure. So when when they talk about events, you're used to like, okay, give me the zero issue or the alpha or the whatever, and give me the that you know, there's going to be how many tie-in issues, and yes. there's going to be this and that, and and we have to have you know all every series has to stop its current forward momentum in order to engage this thing, and I think that that's a very exciting style event. And, and worthy, but that's not what we're going for. Um, so No Surrender is 16 issues, 16 weeks. All of them are under the one uh, flagship Avengers title. So the U.S. Avengers, the Uncanny Avengers, and the regular Avengers titles are all kind of merging, and they'll be coming out weekly for 16 weeks from January 10th through to the end of April, conveniently, well, on purpose, of course, the last issue comes out the week of the Avengers Infinity War movie. So we get to kind of, you know, 
bumper ourselves off of the added visibility that the Avengers name will have heading into the spring. That's excellent. And so yeah. those are the writers. It's Al Ewing, Mark Wade, yourself. That's who's, right. Who's drawing it? Uh, so there's three different artists as well. So, but we're not doing like a tag off uh, every issue. There's the first month is Pepe Larraz, who uh, was the artist on Uncanny Avengers, and he's phenomenal. He's like the next Stuart Eminem, as far as I'm concerned. His uh, design sense, his storytelling, his just epic superhero everything. He's phenomenal. Uh, the second month is uh, Kim Jacinto, who a lot of – he was uh, doing – I think he did some of the Unworthy Thor stuff, uh, tag teaming with Koipel, and, and he is phenomenal and another superstar in the making. And I feel like this series is going to propel him to new and incredible heights. And then the third month is uh, Paco Medina, who's the current artist on US Avengers. Well, I mean he's on our book now, but he's – you can currently see his stuff on US Avengers. And again – Phenomenal storyteller, super solid. So he'll be doing the third month. And then everyone comes back for the victory lap to do the fourth month. So they're going to do, I think, one issue each. And the last issue, I think it's going to depend on who's on time. I think it's going to depend on the scheduling. Uh, you know, I, Based on who started first, it, I think it'll be Pepe, but I don't know that with 100% certainty. Is your epilogue part of that 16 issues? or is there Yes. No, okay, fine. So there's no... All in, then an Omega no, or anything. No, like there's nothing. So you don't have to worry about <laughs> checklists or tie-ins or which issue to read before the the this one or that one. We're keeping it as simple as possible. You show up every Wednesday, you get your Avengers 675, you get your Avengers 676, and onwards until 690. That's all there is to it. You know, so uh, I think in terms of branding and simplicity, I think it's going to be enticing. Um, you know, the other thing that's great about it is what we're hoping is that, it, you know, and I mean this in a, in a nice way. It's habit forming in the sense that you want to go every Wednesday, get the latest chapter, get involved in that momentum of the conversation. Wow, I can't believe, you know, this is going on or what, you know, the cliffhanger that we put on an issue, you know, gets resolved in seven days. Yep. So we can really generate this, hopefully, you know, this real nice momentum with it that every Wednesday there's a burst of conversation. Oh man, the Avengers, this, that, and the other thing. And then next Wednesday, we're going to hit you again and we're going to hit you again. And we're just going to keep pulling out all the stops. It's a very, um, kind of classically heroic story. It's good guys versus bad guys, the fate of the world and more, you know, kind of stuff all happening, uh, some of the biggest characters, you know, in Avengers history against uh, villains of epic proportion. It's it's real kind of, you know, big uh, – the, the mandate that sort of Tom told us when we were putting this together and starting to brainstorm is he said, OK, this is the Avengers movie without a budget constraint. This is, you know, how big can you go? What can we do on the comic page that they wouldn't be able to pull off on the movie screen? What kind of stuff can we do to make – big, crazy, amazing, heroic comics and remind people, you know, once again, why the Avengers are so phenomenal, why these characters in the Marvel universe are so great and what it is to be a hero, you know, in this, in this world. And so that was sort of our, those were our broad marching orders and we just kind of brought everything we could to bear. So the, the first step was we did a, a writing summit. So this was first week of February. I went down to the Marvel office for a couple of days and we did uh, brainstorming and building of we'd already had a couple ideas shot back forth over email just to sort of get, I think, people brainstorming. But then really the vast majority of it was really eked out at that table. Like we sat at the boardroom table 
man, oh man. And we just hammered away at it. And I think at first we were all kind of, you know, it's tough. It's tough to come up with something, um, you know, new and something a little bit different or take those ingredients and and give them a different spin or figure out how it's all going to start fitting together. You know, we end up having, I think there's 25 Avengers that we're working with by the time the series rolls through. And so even just figuring out that, like which characters we're going to spend more time with, which characters are going to make sort of ancillary appearances, what parts of Avengers history, you know, the advantage with that is we had Mark Wade and uh, Tom Brevoort there, you know, so it was like Captain Continuity, you know, (laughs) and, and, and the Continuity twins, like they, they were just like so good at what they do. And no matter what we came up with, they were able to either reference something that we could tie into it. Or in some cases, we'd say something that we thought was really smart. And they'd be like, Oh, no, we've done that. Because they could tell you, you know, line and verse, as if you were spitting it out of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, they knew exactly when, you know, it had been done. And then Tom would tell you what issue and who inked it. Like, it was just like insane. (laughs) But uh, it was awesome. Like, it was so much fun, too. Intimidating uh, for me at first. This was the first time I'd ever done any, I mean, done anything on this scale, let alone at the office. And so I was feeling a little bit kind of nervous at first. And then just like anything else, we got into a good groove on it. And I think we all started building up a real nice sense of camaraderie. And even by the end of that day, that first day, I could feel a real, you know, we had in jokes and we were really kind of comfortable with, with sort of speaking our mind and what we, what was important to us about the story and what we wanted to bring to it. And that kind of momentum carried through for the whole project. The weirdest feeling is, is that we're done writing it. So uh, before the first issue even comes out, we have all 16 scripts completed and we're essentially just doing art and letter proofing now. And, you know, like just seeing the covers getting finalized and solicits and all that. So it's, uh, you know, to quote Tom Brevoort, it's one of the smoothest projects that he's worked on, especially on this scale. And so he's really, really happy with the progress on it. And we're really proud of the work. And it feels a little odd because, you know, none of it's out yet. And, but once it starts coming out, it's going to be, you know, fast and furious, right? Every week hitting on the Wednesdays. So, Well, that's great. And I think uh, readers might be relieved to hear that because, and listen, I understand the human element always sometimes happens. And what was planned to come out at a certain time you know, uh, an artist, an artist suddenly has a baby and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that could, that could screw up a deadline pretty easily or. Oh, real life can sick. totally get in the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Tom, Tom, you know, and Atlanta to their credit, uh, they built a really solid schedule with a, with a quite a wide buffer. And then we didn't really end up having to use much of it. So I think if you look at the first schedule that Tom gave us out of the 16 issues, I think we hit 15 of them on the original schedule. That's great. And so, yeah, yeah. And it was funny because I think we got the first one in and we were all patting each other on the back like, whoo, off to the right start. And then by the time we got like halfway through, I remember sending around like a a meme of like, oh, we're halfway there, you know, <laughs> and uh, we were all laughing about it. And I realized that we hadn't missed a deadline yet. And I didn't want to make a big deal out of it because I didn't want to, you know, us to lose our mojo. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, but we were really, we were kind of self-policing as well. Like we were really on top of it, just hammering away at this thing. Um, and we all have very different sensibilities, which I think, again, I was a little nervous about, but it ended up working as a real positive because we could bring different strengths into it. And, 
uh, you know, just sort of come at the material in different ways so that we're not just all in lockstep. But that means that, you know, we can we can all offer something. It's not just like three robots cranking up pages. But, you know, Mark does certain things better and Al does certain things better. And in theory, I do certain things better that you'd have to ask them what those are. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, it was good. It was really good. Um, and just one of the most phenomenal experiences. The last issue came in a little late because of New York Comic Con. OK. Uh, and. Uh, honestly, I, I froze up a little on the last issue cause I realized we were coming to the end. So I had this weird like feeling like, Oh, Oh, it's over. <laughs> and all of a sudden I like slowed production right down. We're fine. All the artists had stuff to work on, but for myself, I like kind of relished that last epilogue issue where we were just sort of, you know, sending everyone off and whatnot. So yeah, it, it's been a really phenomenal experience and I, and I hope that people have half as much fun reading it as I've had working on it because it has been a real, you know, uh, project of a lifetime with, with some phenomenal collaborators and seeing the art come in, you know, months later, we, Pepe didn't even start drawing it. I think till we had six in the can written because we wanted to make sure that the structure was working. We wanted to make sure that we didn't have to go back and make a bunch of changes or, you know, foreshadowing just all the things that we, you know, realized could hitch us up. And that was one of the nice things about that schedule is because we started so early, we were able to confidently hand off, you know, we'd done multiple drafts and we'd made lots of little revisions, but that Pepe was stepping into that first issue confident that what he was drawing was what we wanted to see. So I always ask when I talk to especially Marvel creators in particular, because the events there seem to come fast and furious and I'm going to keep calling it an event. You'll forgive me, but I do because I do see the differences and I want to talk about the differences. Is there anything that Tom threw out there in terms of you want to avoid this because this happened in the last few events and we don't want that to happen from a structure standpoint, from a from a story standpoint, and also obviously given uh, Mark's experience, Mark Wade, yeah, he was on fifty two and stuff. One of the things that we realized, well, that Tom brought up at the meeting was he said, okay, we have a huge cast of characters. And that's great. And we want to leverage the strength of that. But what we want to avoid is, I don't know if this was the the official term, but someone brought up the postage stamp theater where you have just dozens of characters smashing into each other on big two page spreads or whatever. And then you start to, you lose the emotional stakes because it's just action figures crashing into each other. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And so the idea was that we wanted to make sure that there was an emotional quality to it, that even if the, the issue has those big epic fights and trust me, we have those big epic fights that within the issue, we might be focusing on one particular character's experience within that or the end result of what happens out of that battle most pronouncedly affects this one character that we're going to shine the spotlight on so that we have an emotional anchor to the to the giant explosive battle that we didn't just, you know, look at the toys smash into each other sure. kind of thing. And so that was a, a mandate. But again, these are real abstractions. Like Tom never came to us and said, you have to use these characters or you have to do these plot lines or things like that. It was very broad. Like he really left it open for us. He would tell us what he didn't want, or we would throw an idea out and he goes, I'm not crazy about it because X, you know what I mean? Or this character is being used elsewhere or things like that. Or, you know, I don't know that this sounds like an Avengers story at first. And then we would say, okay. And we would discuss it back and forth. But once we keyed into what 
we liked and he liked, it was we were driving, you know, like 90 percent of it, honestly, in terms of storytelling and in terms of end result. And, you know, we knew sort of what our marching orders were in the big sense, but then how to get there, you know, we could get there our own way and sort of prove how that could work. You know what I mean? And so, yeah. And poor Alana, she was there taking notes furiously. I think she took like eight or 10 pages of notes and we were all taking notes as well. Um, and then trying to, you know, uh, translate them afterwards. Oh yeah. We talked about this. Oh yeah. That was a good idea. You know, all that kind of stuff as well. Uh, and then these Excel spreadsheets start flying back and forth as you try and plug in 25 characters and figure out where they are at each stage of the story and, and who's up and who's down and what's happening to them. So that was really kind of mind numbing sometimes, but also kind of amazing because as you started plugging it all in, you know, the great thing about the Marvel universe and the great thing about these characters is they generate ideas, they generate creativity, you know, just putting them in different combinations you haven't seen before, you know, putting them in situations they haven't been in before generates storytelling, generates drama and surprises. And so, and, and you didn't feel like you were alone. Like it wasn't my event. It's not Al's event and it's not Mark's event. It's all of ours. Sure. So if you were sort of hitched up, like, I don't know, like I can't, I'm having trouble plugging these two things together you know, you're, you've got your editor and then you've got your co-writers and we're all sort of in this together. So that was a really cool feeling that, you know, um, especially on such an epic thing with, with so many moving parts. It, it seems too in the last few big stories from Marvel, when you've got a giant team like this, that they are trying to have other heroes in the leading roles as opposed to the usual core Classic Avengers, Thor, Iron Man, Captain America. Right. And and we wanted a mixture of kind of, you know, long running favorites and also some unexpected ones as well, because I think that they bring different perspectives to the material. So I can't tell you all of them, but, you know, one of the ones that's come out in the press is uh, Living Lightning. So he's a character who's never really had his due. And Al, I can tell you flat out, was the one who brought him into the mix and said, look, I really, you know, I want to do something with this character. I think he's really cool and his power set's really cool. And we just, we could do something and make this character so much more than they have been in the comics. And I was sort of like, okay, I didn't know him very well. So, you know, kind of like sell him to me, give me the goods. And he was going on and by the, Al's really amazing and passionate. And he just really brought a lot of thought about this to the character. And I said, okay, this is great. We can, we can totally play ball with this. We can make this work. And, and we all started kind of jamming with that amongst other characters as well, let alone the fact you've got a character who hasn't been around very much. So you can sort of sort of show this perspective of an Avenger coming back into the fold and, you know, how, what's their perspective on what they're seeing and sure. how are they, you know, trying to prove themselves with all these heavy hitters and long running characters, you know, and and that alone gave us, a cool angle that we didn't have in the story at that point. Also in Marvel legacy. And right now her name is escaping me. There's the new mystery character that has suddenly right. appeared in her continuity. What's her name again? So that's uh Valerie vector, the Voyager, the Voyager yes, <laughs> which is such a, with such a Stanley esque name. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, and that's by design, of course uh, <laughs> we had a really cool time coming up with that. So that was something that we were coming up with like, this character, uh, you know, who's important to Avengers canon and all this kind of stuff. 
and how does she fit into the story and create a cool mystery and you know again draw upon some of these things that people may have seen before in other stories but how can we give it a new spin how can we surprise you even though you may think you know you don't know you know that that kind of stuff <laughs> and that's what's so cool about it and here's the thing no matter what we do the great and terrible thing about you know internet discourse is by the time the first couple issues come out people are going to throw 4,000 theories against the wall. Absolutely. And some people are going to hit it. <laughs> the good thing is the thing's already written, so we're not going to change it. You know, if you if you figure it out, great. If it meets your expectations, even better. You know, like hopefully it will be satisfying and emotionally engaging regardless. But, you know, let's try and make the most compelling and interesting sort of story we can with it. I, um, yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, please. Vo- Voyager is also something that we sort of looked at and we said, okay, you know, I think it actually started about a bit about the power set, like a character, and I can't say too much, but a character that does something that you haven't seen as much in a team like the Avengers. And what can we do to sort of show this other side or, or bring something a little bit different to the mix in that way. And then all the, the story stuff that ties into it as well. And once we start brainstorming, you know, this idea of this um, character from the sixties, you know, that she would have this classical, feel to her and so we had to come up with a name that felt kind of kitschy and cool in that regard and uh i can't remember who came up with voyager um i think the funny thing is i think my original one was vector and then we used that for her last name for her secret identity so valerie vector the voyager and we all just started laughing we're like okay that's awesome you know we got (laughs) it and that's what was so cool about it too because there's elements of this that are very classic kind of good versus evil Avengers, we leaned in on some of the kind of old school feel of some aspects of it. So there were some characters and, and plot elements, not plot elements, not the right word I want to use. Um, some of the MacGuffins and things that are in the story that, that I had kind of a placeholder name for one of them because I thought it was a little corny. And then the longer we had it, we were like, no, it's awesome because <laughs> it's the kind of name that, you know, Hopefully someone like Stan would come up would have come up with and set it with a plum and just been so excited about you know. Well, I, I also think that uh, big stories now have a harder uh, relationship with the readership that wasn't there before because of social media because sure. of and it's so ridiculous to say that there is a twenty four hour news cycle regarding comics, but here we are. Yeah, I mean, and it's, and people are always talking about it in some regard. I mean, they, you know, and, and speculating, so much speculation, right? But that's entertainment as a whole. Like, well, sure. the movie, the movie business is built off this insane box office guessing, box office measuring model, you know, that that just wasn't the discourse back when I was growing up. You know, not Absolutely. in the same regard. You'd have a hit movie. Oh man, this is a hit movie. But rarely would you talk about it. You'd never talk about it in such granular terms as we do now. Well, you questioning, know, the, questioning plot points, questioning characters. I mean, God, uh, when they kill off uh, Judy Dench in the Bond fa- franchise, it's already a story the day the movie's opening up. Yeah. Which is well, it's, it's so different, right? Because... You know, they've got literally teaser trailers for trailers, Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, yes. and they got they got people taking, you know, on set uh, photos, secret photos. So then they can see a green suit. So then they go, oh, I think it's this character, you know, stuff like that. Oh, I yeah. mean, it is wild the amount of speculation that is generated by this stuff. So 
that was one of the things, honestly, I was surprised about. We managed to keep No Surrender a secret right up until pretty much the announcement. Like some people were saying, oh, there's some stuff coming up at Avengers 675. But no one actually knew what it was, and it wasn't revealed until the announcement. And I think we were all kind of collectively holding our breath, <laughs> expecting someone was going to ruin it, especially since – and, this, you know – um, Marvel had a retailer summit earlier in the year, and I know that that was a big chunk of news because of the the blowout that happened with David Gabriel and all that. Yeah. But at that summit, they told retailers about the weekly, yeah. and we're talking what is that? April, May? God, that that's impressive. Okay, yeah. And no one no one leaked that aspect of it. That's it. and so. Yeah, we were sh- we were like, well, it's, it'll be out next week. Everyone will know <laughs> next week. They may not know the creative team. They may not know, but they'll know next year there's going to be a weekly. And then nothing came of it. And we just sort of looked at each other and went, well, all right, full steam ahead, you know, so. That's excellent. No, that's great, man. And I and again, yeah, I think um, I'm glad that all the I'm glad all the scripts are locked, too. Or if if, yeah. if they are locked, uh, air quotes. Well, I think know. the only one that's not locked is the epilogue. Like. We're literally we we handed that in you know a week and a half ago, and Tom basically said step back you know let's let's take a breather for a sec. The artists have all got stuff to do. Everyone's good and busy. Take a step back. Uh, you know I think it's good, but let's get a nice fresh look at it. You know in a week or so, sure. which we is great. You know and so we're gonna take a real nice crack at it and see if it needs some you know, polish and, and what little changes might be required. It's tough, right? Cause you're moving, you know, the epilogue is an entire issue. The, the climax in terms of the action is all in part 15. That's how I'm used to looking at it. Like I know that's 689, but in my head it was always like, you know, we're doing it by the, the 16 part structure. Sure. sure. Um, so in part 15 is when all the big, crazy, epic payoff kind of happens to the action and 16 is, in a good way, I think, quieter and more emotional and paying off some of the, you know, the, the, the stakes in some, in some emotional ways and kind of leading us out uh, and, and sort of showing where the Avengers, you know, will go from here. And so it just has a very different function. And it's nice to have that breathing room to be able to look at it in a little bit and go, okay, is it achieving all the things we needed to achieve? Does it say all the things we need it to say without feeling, you know, uh, claustrophobic or whatever? Understood. And I also think that, again, because you guys are declaring it's a 16-part story, that I think some of the readership will be like, okay, fine. Because a lot of times it's it's the event. It's going to be eight issues. Well, uh, sorry, uh, you know we need more space. Okay, it's going to be nine issues. Oh, and there's also sure. Little and, and I understand and how that you, stuff of course happens. You do. <laughs> too. I mean, the reason why that stuff happens is also because you have tie-in issues and you have sure. all these moving parts. So you look and you say, well, we can, you know, we can cover that in the X Men or whatever. We can cover that here, or I'm sure this will fit there. And then the reality of working with how many different creative teams, how many different editorial teams across all the different offices, across all the different titles, and you start to realize this isn't going to fit the way you thought it was. You know, that was the case, I think, with Secret Empire or with, you know, Secret Wars or things, other words that have secret in them. Um, <laughs> but, you just, you know, all those – and I, I don't blame any of those people. Of I, I can't even imagine how difficult it is to try and get this thing all built and functioning properly. We had the luxury, I guess you could say, of – knowing structurally this is what it was going to be i only have to convince two other writers and an editor like let's do this you know and we're keeping it avenger centric so there are little um 
call outs to what other characters in the Marvel universe are doing because of our story, but it's not an X-Men story and we don't have to really worry about their current situation, if that makes sense. It does. And well, I guess because again, um, only due to, you know, real life getting in the way, you know, we heard, okay, Tony Stark's going to wind up in a coma before, uh, civil war two wraps up, right? you know, things like that, that I mean, and again, that's, that's more of a publisher's question. It's, I understand that sometimes these things happen. I, what I don't understand is why, the tie-ins come out on time when the event is behind. And I, sure. and I know the trains well, have got to run. Think, well, if you've got, sure a, if you've got an a, explanation, I'm, I'm willing. Well, I think, that's a number, I think that's a number cruncher thing, that, that you don't want to log jam a bunch of tie-in issues all coming out the same week. You know, you, like Because that's also sort of punishing retailers if you're having a ton of titles hitting the same week, You know, if people can't buy them all kind of thing. I bet, you know, it's more complicated than all that. The more issues you have, the more tie-ins you have, the more, you know, the, the trains can back up. Yeah. And so it's it's a really difficult thing. So we, we had this very different kind of structure in mind right from the get-go. And it was liberating in a lot of ways that we could look and say, okay, this is what it is and this is what it is not. You know, that, that I don't have to be – we address what other people in the Marvel Universe are doing as a result of what – is happening. Yes. But, but it's more like the original secret wars in the way that it happens. And then the other titles will show the end result of what we do. Does that make sense? It does. And I think also, again, back in the secret war days, it was understandable because it did kind of present its own mystery and ever, right. you know, like, Whoa, there's the black costume. where did that come from? How, you know, exactly. how, you know, stuff exactly. like that. And that's okay. <laughs> if, if, if by design that's happening rather than, picking up an issue of Iron Man and reading, oh, Tony Stark's in a coma. It's, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So <laughs> I think we've, we, you know, we have the benefit of, of seeing what has sort of worked or, or in some cases not worked and sort of said, okay, we're going to come at it from this angle and we're going to, you know, this is our approach and it's Avengers first kind of last and always and, and really marking this milestone for the team's, and how they all mix. And I, you know, the, the natural thing would have been, I, I guess the most obvious thing would have been just to have the three teams going on three related missions, but we decided we'd make it more difficult for ourselves. So right from the get go, we intermingle all the teams and they all start doing stuff as a group. And so that, but that was way more fun. Cause then it wasn't just about everyone stay in your corner. It was about, okay, everyone gets to do cool stuff with everyone, you know? I do. Excellent. Well, what do you uh, tell me about working with Wade and uh, Ewing? It's awesome. I like I it's so funny because I've been talking about it several interviews and I I I can feel this sense like people assume, oh, man, they must be paying him really good to be such a good shill. (laughs) But I swear I had a phenomenal time. It has been so satisfying working with these two. They like both of them are phenomenal writers, which shouldn't surprise anyone. But not only that, they're really giving collaborators like both of them were there kind of ego free, just sort of saying, okay, what can we do to make a better story? You know, the first time I edited a line of Mark Wade dialogue, I thought, well, I'm going to hell like this, you know, <laughs> this, this is going to, this is going to be a fight or this is going to be a problem or, you know, we're going to have disagreements or I think we were all kind of collectively holding our breath <laughs> that someone was going to blow like, you know, or Al was going to get bent out of shape or I was going to get ticked off and, and it just never really happened. Like 
you know, it's not that we didn't have disagreements, but there was a sense of, okay, well, what's best for the story? Well, I think this. Well, I think that. Okay, let's talk a little more about it. And eventually someone comes around and goes, yeah, I can see more yours than mine. And then you just sort of tilt with it. And that was really where we were coming at this stuff, you know. And if I was changing something, I would say for these reasons or, you know, I would be like, well, you know, I'm currently writing Rogue. So, um, you know, we have to add all the Claremont colloquialisms to her voice because that's how that's how I'm doing it. So every time she says I, it has to be a H. So she's saying, ah, you know, because that's <laughs> that's how she rolls in my book. So uh, I'm going to go through and change every one of your eyes into an ah. And we got uh, some rogue speak going on, you know, just but but all kinds of funny stuff like that. We had a moment and I can't tell you what it is. It's not even a big story spoiler, but there was like one. This is literally in the epilogue issue. There was a line of dialogue I put in there as a throwaway joke. And um, Al was like, oh, you know, I don't think we should put that in there because it, it could put, you know, whatever writer that's doing that character later in a weird spot where they have to address it. And I said, no, no, it's funny. Like, it's just a joke. It doesn't have to mean anything. And I was like, I don't know, like the fans will probably assume it's more than what it is. And I get what you're going for, but we just let's not let's not, you know, mess with this or whatever. And I was like, well, I don't see it that way, but it's not a big deal. It's a nothing line. So, yeah, whatever. Just change it. And then uh, Atlanta tweet, uh, sorry, tweets, emails and uh, big full caps. It's like, oh, my God, is there going to be a fight? <laughs> And then I, we just started joking around. I think for the next hour, we just sent a bunch of joke emails back and forth pretending we were fighting. <laughs> and everyone knew we were joking around. And that was the kind of stuff. It was just like that. We had this really great camaraderie. There was a weird, you know, we were on a conference call and someone just said a plot point. You know, this is comics. So when you say this stuff out loud, sometimes it sounds like the most insane gibberish ever because you're using all this superhero terminology and aliens and weird, just weird stuff. Sure. And we said it, and then we all just started laughing because we realized how m just ludicrous it sounded. And then Alana said, "She goes, man, that sounds like like an indie punk band. The name that that those words." And we were like, "Yeah, yeah, it's an indie punk band." And she goes, "I want the tour T-shirt for that band." And we all laughed. No lie, no lie, John. A week later, she posts a photo. Mark Wade had a custom T-shirt made for her, <laughs> and she's. Just holding up this T-shirt at the office with absolute glee. He didn't tell us he was doing it. He just <laughs> quietly sent this thing. And we, we that's the kind of camaraderie we've had on this, you know, that's like great. just this fun. Uh, one of the things I said to Alana is I want to do a lot of back matter. I want to have little editorial pages and because oh, we've got so many Go on, yeah. fun, fun little stories about developing it or little behind the scene glimpses. I think those are the things, you know, the old Marvel comics. You know, when Stan was talking to you from the soapbox, he felt it felt like he was talking to you. You know, absolutely, he was, he was saying something special, and you were in the room and you were overhearing it or something. And I feel like of anything of Marvel Legacy, that feeling of personality and and personal engagement is really crucial. And if we can bring that into the books, remind people that there are people making this stuff that they have something that they want to bring to you and that they're having an absolute blast making it and you're going to have an absolute blast reading it. I think that that's something that's been sort of lost in the face of crushing insane deadlines and sales analysis and all the psychoses, you know, whatever. Sure. Um, if we can bring that kind of fun, playful quality and it's not that the books aren't quality, of course they're quality, but that 
we're having a blast and you're going to have a blast. And I feel like you get that when you go to the Marvel movies. And I feel like you get that in some of the Marvel books. But I feel like people are so uptight about – I don't know. There's a whole bunch of different factors at play, uh, whether people are comfortable with that kind of hucksterism of, of the classic Stan Lee era or not. I just you know, kind of reminding people, hey, these are these are – fun people making fun books and you know come on join us let's do this well and a lot of that kind of back matter it seemed like was happening uh digitally with the augmented uh reader right. kind of digital uh content that we were getting and that's where we would get you know a quick 90 seconds of a writer talking about a sequence or a character or the quick montage of you know from from pencil to full art Right, you know that kind of but, but I so think that great. only a, a limited amount of people were absolutely were yes taking making use of that. Right. You know, it was a good experiment and totally worth doing. Sure. But I think that if we can sort of reconnect it into the main book, that will be well, a lot of fun. Yeah, man, because you're like like you said, that was always part of the diet of reading Marvel comics was the soapbox and that kind of hey, we're letting you in on what we're doing. So I, I think that so there will be back matter then on all the issues. Or? Yeah, that's uh, well at least that's that's my intent, and I know Atlanta's 100 percent on board and Tom's on board. So I think it's just the good thing is again because we have the time now, sure. we can we can make this extra content and not feel like we're oh god we're right under the deadline. The most important thing, of course, is getting the book off to print. Of course, it's like well if we're in this space where we we know it's going to be there, we know it's going to be on time. Okay, then let's how can we add extra value? How can we make this feel? Like you got to get the issues, not just the trade paperbacks. You know, yes. when I, when I did Thunderbolts, uh, we would do really uh, for for Marvel, we did pretty extensive letters pages, and there was a lot of fans asking us about you know Bucky Barnes stuff, sure. and, you know the the history of the Thunderbolts and what kind of thing. And, and those playful, jovial answers, like Atlanta said, you don't have to answer the, all these letters, and I was like, I need to, like this is my, I get to play Stan Lee and answer letters <laughs> and be a big dope, like don't stop me like i gotta do this this is dream come true for me you know i i I don't know that we're gonna get a chance to do that with the weekly to be able to do letters pages but i would love to i mean that would be an absolute scream i you know absolutely man well again i i think it's pretty evident that you have and and clearly getting this assignment as well that you've kind of figured out how to collaborate within the Marvel system while doing your own creator own books as well. And I know in the, yeah, I know and, in the and, past, and, and, I want, let me ask a question because I, I want to, sure. I want to hear what you think of, of assimilating into that kind of corporate structure and still retaining your voice. I know in the past, sure. a lot of uh, creators would almost have an established uh, for lack of a better word, Godfather writer, like uh fraction uh, had Brubaker for iron fist. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in turn, Fraction kind of did that for Remender, and Hickman had Bendis to kind of lean on in Secret Warriors and other things like that. Did you have that kind of already established Marvel writer? And if not, how did you assimilate into the Marvel structure? I wish I did. Okay. (laughs) That sounds really great. I wish I did have that. uh, Man, now I feel all left out of the the game there. You Um, on your own. It seems to go on. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really have that. I mean, I had editorially, sure. you know, sure. like kind of people going to bat for me. Bill Roseman was the first person who really gave me a shot uh to write at Marvel. And he brought me on board for that Figment uh ser- mini series we did, the Disney Kingdoms line uh-huh. that Marvel put out. Yep. And and Bill invited me for the, you know, kind of not funny, but like weird sort of sideways reason that 
he didn't know that much about figment, but he knew it was fantasy. There's a dragon involved. And he's like, well, I know Jim writes all sorts of fantasy stuff. And I like those books. We'll get the fantasy guy to do fantasy stuff. There you go. And, but that, you know, we slowly build up a rapport and, and, you know, I went down to the office once and I figured, geez, maybe this is the only time I get to write a Marvel book. You know, if I'm in New York, I got to stop by the office. And he and I commiserated over our love of, you know, Spider-Man and Marvel and all this stuff, literally having that weird conversation where you're like, okay, what's the first Marvel book you remember buying? And I tell him the issue number and he tells me what's on the cover and, you know, like. All right, tell us that. <laughs> well, it's so. Uh, what was your first right? Marvel? It, so uh, it's, uh, I do believe it's Amazing Spider-Man 231. It's a total non-crazy issue. It's just like the Cobra is hanging on Spider-Man's back and there he's trying to climb a wall and uh it's a phenomenal such a great issue the next issue's got uh Mr. Hyde in it okay <laughs> and 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 it's just like classic kind of Spider-Man Peter down on his luck stuff who and wrote it I, do you remember who wrote it uh oh god um i want to say Al Milgram hold okay. on okay oh that'd be great <laughs> Oh, you're going to look think? it up? Do you have it? <laughs> I am looking it up as we speak because now I feel like a big old and, and While you're looking it up, I'll say, because I – and I'd be interested. The first comic book I remember buying, period, was a – Roger Stern. Nice. Roger Stern. All right. There's nothing wrong with that. There you go. My first was a Superman issue. I don't remember the number, but it was such a throwaway – uh, Bronze Age, one and done. But you don't know that. That's what's great about it. You just read it and you're like, this is exciting. Absolutely. I'm into this. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I literally collected Spider-Man from 231 through to 370, I think. Jesus. That's Like great. a really long monthly run. Oh, yeah. Plus, I was trying to buy back issues at the same time, but they were all way too expensive for me to afford. So I would I would get Marvel Tales. Yes, of course. I, I was going to say, and, that's what I leaned on for my early Marvel knowledge. Go I on. would try and try and um, fill in the gaps. I had a checklist, and if I if I had the original issue, I would fill it in. And if I had the Marvel Tales, I would just exit. So I knew it wasn't the original, and I would someday I would get it. Oh, that's you know, hilarious. In my like a placeholder and stuff. I had yeah, yeah. Like that's I got fantastic. the story, but I don't have the issue. That's you know? great. I was able. That's what I told Jerry Conway. I, I read Gwen Stacy's death in Marvel Tales, and I, yeah. I was nine years old at the time. And I'm like, you blew my nine year old mind, man. A character died in a book. What the hell's going on? Oh, it's crazy stuff. It was awesome, <laughs> but but that was the thing, right? So, um, anyway, so Bill and I commiserated over that stuff. And he could really tell, you know, I had deep, deep love of the Marvel Universe. And, and my brother and I, growing up, we would literally – we had the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, the deluxe editions. Nice. And we would we would test each other. We would, like, just pull random trivia out and just, you know, what's the first appearance of this character? And, you know, just this kind of craziness because we were obsessive-compulsive about the stuff. And so, you know, we were laughing about that. And, and Bill was like, oh, man, we got to get you in here doing more superhero stuff. To which I was like, of course, that would be the best. Um, and so we had started developing a couple different concepts we were working on. Um, and there was a concept we were playing with that there was talk of, OK, we might try and launch this, um, you know, at this time. And we were just sort of moving into that position. And then Secret Wars got uh, sort of was being developed. And he was like, it's not a good time to launch a new thing because everything's going to blow up. Sure. And so he said, OK, you know, let's let's wait. And I was like, all right. And then he came back and he said, I think we can do it during Secret Wars. It's sort of like a cool, you know, this will be something different. And then if people like it, we can we can spring out of Secret Wars with with this, you know, ongoing. I was like, wow, wow, that'd be great. 
And then um, he said, okay, no, we're going to do it after Secret Wars and it'll be a new thing. And I was like, okay. And every time we were retooling the pitch a little bit and retooling the, get the elements. And then all of a sudden he got um, a new job. So he basically got uh, uh, a promotion and he's still in charge of Marvel games. So he's the liaison working with all the video game companies and promoting Marvel all around the world for all these huge hit video game titles. Okay. Which is great, and it, you know, it was a huge benefit for him, obviously. And but all of a sudden, this thing that we were developing—it was a real pet project. It was like Bill had a desire to do this, but he couldn't really hand it off to anyone else because it, it just, you know, it was his thing. And and you know, everyone else has their own sort of pet projects or things that they're doing internally. So all of a sudden, this thing we'd worked on for weeks and weeks and weeks was dead in the water, and I was feeling a little dejected. But I totally, I'm you know, I'm not mad at him. It's just the way things go. But he did me the biggest favor because on the way out of the office, he basically went around to all the editors and he said, if you're not working with Jim's, uh, you're you're making a mistake like this guy. He gets it and he's really good. And I know he's going to be something great if we give him a chance. And Tom was the first person to really key into that and say, OK, I'll give this guy a shot. And so we had talked back and forth about a couple of different possible projects. And then the Thunderbolts happened. So. That was really my chance to to sort of show people, okay, I can play in the sandbox, I can work well in the system, I can do it monthly, you know, and and to spec, but still feel like my own thing. That's great. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, because I and I think a guy like Bill, a guy like Mark Panisci is another guy like that. That mm-hmm. I, I'm always interested in who the editors are and how you know, yeah, who's editing these these quirky books because it is the quirky books that I think make the most interesting noise. Sometimes they're able to fly under the radar and not be some of the big giant books and therefore can be more experimental and find their own voices and stuff. I, I uh, So it doesn't surprise me because Bill has always been that kind of editor when he was working on comics and that's... Yeah, and Bill's, I mean, Bill is just, just so gung-ho all the time and bringing great notes. You know, Tom and Atlanta obviously bring great notes as well, sure. but Bill was my first experience sort of working with, you know, a, a Marvel editor, and so I just didn't know what to expect, and everyone's different, and that's one of the good things about these different offices is people are bringing their sensibilities into it and finding, you know, myself at the Avengers office and realizing I was really intimidated, to be honest with you, to work with Tom. You know, Tom's been an editor since I was a kid, basically editing on books I used to collect. And so the idea of him being my boss was he, I didn't, he wasn't intimidated. You know, he didn't, well, he sure. just, <laughs> He's but I, I mean, he was not, not that he'd be intimidated, but he wasn't worried. I was worried. I, I was like nervous. He, he was like, Oh yeah, you'll do fine. And I was just like crap and bricks. Uh, <laughs> and, and then got those first few kind of issues done and felt good with them and got good feedback and realized, okay, I can do this. Like I can do this. And not, like you sort of said, not lose yourself, not lose your voice, you know, that I can finish a story to spec, but also be proud of the end result, that I'm not just some writing robot spitting out dialogue, you know, that, that that's not how I approach these stories, you know. I do. And I, and I also uh, think that you um, understand, too, that, as you said earlier, um, and now actually I'm conflating maybe an interview you did with uh, – uh, David from Off Panel, mm-hmm. but uh, I I I do think that given where the Avengers are right now, and also a guy like Tom, who's you know overseen so much and is Captain Continuity, as you said and stuff, it's it's hard to because you are competing with Avengers history here, 
to to make sure. it, to make a, a story special. And I would imagine, you know, and again, that's why maybe it is good that you got your feet wet with the Thunderbolts. And the Thunderbolts have their own history as well, obviously, but not oh, as baby. Do I know it now? <laughs> I'm sure you do. But that's the well, thing. that's one of the things people were asking me about how much research I do. And I think every every writer is different. You know, some writers, I think they want to read less because they don't want to be influenced by what's gone before. They want to really come in and just sort of, you know, clear the decks or do some crazy stuff and not get caught up in the minutia. Uh, and I feel like knowing the continuity empowers me. It empowers me to speak with authority about the characters and empowers me to, to, to make those little touches that I think the, the fans, the long-term fans, um, appreciate, but trying to do it in such a way that I'm not losing a new reader, you know? So if the, the Thunderbolts, someone makes a joke about having crappy leaders and then someone makes an offhanded joke about Norman Osborn you can insinuate, oh, they were once led by Norman Osborn, and you don't have to have read all those issues. Sure. You don't have to know all those things. But that little wink and nod tells you that this is a continuous story, that these characters have a long-running history together and that they've you know, done things. And part of the theme of my run of the Thunderbolts was this idea of you can't go back. Like you can try and get the, the band back together but they're not going to play the same songs, that they're going to make mistakes, new mistakes. They're going to be different people, that they're, they're all new kinds of screw ups um, and, and that that is OK, that that is part and parcel of us growing and changing and moving on with our lives. And so the whole nature of it was about addressing the past. But again, not in a way where you had to constantly see issue XX, feel like you had to read everything. I read everything. And I will bring, you know, the benefit of that to the page by being able to speak to it so that you don't have to. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. It's uh, it's that balance of fan service and bringing something new. And I think that any long running uh, intellectual property that has that soap opera background of, hey, we've been on this ride for X number of years. Uh, it's it's a tough tightrope to walk. It is really tight and it's tough. And, and and one of the other things that's difficult is like, particularly when you have characters that have had multiple characterizations over multiple runs, you know, you have to look and you have to say, well, in some cases, these are almost 180 degrees opposing each other, the way that this character acts here and the way that the character acts there. So I'll never get it right to some people because no matter what I do, if I favor one or the other, the other one looks wrong. So I have to sort of say, okay, what do I feel like the through line is with this character? And what do I feel like is most right to me that I can key into for my characterization? Like what speaks to me about this character and what can I do to sort of emphasize those qualities as I move forward? So, you know, that that's sort of my approach to the continuity angle and, and the research stuff. And, you know, obviously uh, Uncanny Avengers, which I'm doing right now, that's a series that has a whole bunch of long running, you know, I've got the human torch on my team. I've got rogue, I've got uh, brother voodoo and, and the Scarlet witch and uh, Quicksilver. These are characters with hundreds of issues of continuity beneath them. I'll never be able to address them all. And that's okay. But having a broader sense of who they are and where they've been, I can communicate that through the story. I can communicate the fact that they're not spring chickens and they've seen a lot and that they are, capable but still flawed you know all those things well and again i think uh is are there more members of your roster other than who you rattled off there 
Yeah, there's a newer character named uh, Synapse, uh, who is an inhuman uh, character that, that Jerry Duggan introduced uh, at the start of his run. There's also uh, Janet Van Dyne for crying out loud, the Wasp. And so, you know, she, again, huge character, long oh, running the, history. Like Legacy Avenger, one of the original founders. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, again, which characters are going to get a little bit of the spotlight this issue? How can we bring them into it? In the latest issue, we had, you know, Wonder Man and Beast are uh, back in the Excellent. mix. Excellent. So, I mean, we're – what is that, like eight, nine characters? Sure. <laughs> it's, you know, it would, good good test run for No Surrender. Um, <laughs> we, we, yeah, really bringing these characters and making them feel like they've all got something to say, that they've all got something to do and not just feel like busy work. Like, you know, it is a soap opera. So, you know, there's some elements of it where once we're done, we have to put the toys back in the box the way we found it. But there's other things where I can move the story forward or I can – push a little in, in one direction or another and hopefully add a new wrinkle or a new surprise to the whole thing. And I think that that's part and parcel of, of playing well in the Marvel universe or any kind of connected media property, you know, that you're paying me to bring my creativity to it. So that means I should add something. I shouldn't just, you know, do nothing, but equally I have to be respectful of, the fact that it's not mine and I don't own it. And at the end of the day, I do have to quote, put it back or whatever, or at least leave it in an interesting position that someone else can build off of. Did you have to, uh, ask for your roster or was, were there any characters thrust upon you or you, you've got to work with these guys? How did, how did coming you, up with you talking about un, for, uncanny? Yeah, for uncanny? Uncanny was really an established book. Um, you know, that Jerry was doing. And once the decision was made that Avengers was going to go weekly, uh, you know, I was already going to be taking over the book. So the idea at that point was, okay, I'm essentially wrapping up the title right. to lead into a no surrender. And so my job has got to be, first of all, thematically, how do I feel? What, what has Jerry been doing? Not trying to be Jerry Duggan, but also try and be synchronized with what he's sure. doing. Sure, well, it's, you're, you're jumping in in the middle of a, a soap opera, so yeah, you got to honor what's there, obviously. Right, and so while still bringing myself into the mix, so I had to look and sort of say, okay, this feels like where Rogue is at, and I want her in this position by the time we hit No Surrender. How do I connect those dots in a way that's going to feel logical and, and entertaining, you know, and just do that across the board, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, Wonder Man, all this stuff, and uh, put put all the pieces where we need them to go. In some ways, writing the last three issues of Uncanny Avengers was really, really easy because just the way the schedule ended up working, I'd already written, God, seven issues of No Surrender with the guys. And so essentially, you, you know, Tom and Alana had to let me do everything I wanted to do. Because we'd already written the the aftermath of it. Understood. Sure. Yeah. It's almost like yeah, you've you've solved the murder, and now you've got to figure out how to get there to that. Yeah. 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 So I'm literally writing the the uh, you know I have to plug this in. Sure. So I was sort of laughing because they were the most editorially simple issues I've ever done. I said, "Remember all those things we said we were going to do? I did them." And then they went great. <laughs> so it was only <laughs> and three. Off to the art. It was only three on Kennys well, then. No, no, no. Well, I did six in total, okay. but three of them I wrote during No Surrender. Got it. So the other three I wrote, they were uh, the first two were uh, tie-ins to uh, Secret Empire. Okay, all right. And so those were, you know, by necessity, I had to deal with um, the heroes being caught in Manhattan in that dark force field and all that kind of stuff. Uh, 
And so that was like, you know, although they were my first issues, they weren't, they were mine. I did write them, but in many ways they were like kind of a little bit janitorial in the sense I had to deal with stuff that had already been put into play. And so I set up a couple thematic things that I knew I was going to pay off later, like an issue 29 and 30 still coming out. But for the most part, it was sort of stuff that needed to happen for Secret Empire. And that was fine. In some ways, it gave me a little bit of a uh, training wheels to sort of head in and get the characters' voices rather than having to hit the ground with, like, tons of plot lines right from the get-go. I hear you, man. No, and that all makes sense. And again, I mean, that's the thing. These are ongoing stories. So, that all, again, that all makes sense. I, uh, yeah. I'm interested in uh, you... you uh, kind of uh, made the news and uh, the news rounds because of your Tumblr blog, because you have uh, always, and we talked about this before when you've been on, uh, you've been always up front in terms of uh, letting people know about the process of making comics and the business end of making comics. Right. And uh, I, you know, I, I give you a lot of credit because I think, especially coming from sports radio, as I do, because there's a lot of sports fans that feel like they have solved the problem that a, a certain team would have. If you just made this trade, everything would be better right. on the team. Right. And I think if all things could just tilt towards their ideal vision of the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and they really are like, Oh, and I don't understand why, you know, the powers that be just don't make these moves. And certainly we sure. see enough of that in comics. And in fact, you know, you mentioned Stan's soapbox. I almost think that that legacy of Marvel and the combination of today's social media has, kind of made it like there are armchair quarterbacks that are Marvel fans that can tell you, well, if they just wrote Spider-Man this way, right. or if they just you know would do these few things to the Avengers, it would be so much better. What is keeping them from doing that? I've solved the problem. How come mm-hmm. they're not smart enough to sm- solve the problem as well? Right. And you're, you've, uh, and I think you've reached, you've, you've, kind of received some of that feedback and some of it isn't even anything you might've particularly done. I think because you're out there and willing to mm-hmm. have a dialogue with readers that a lot of times, yeah, they will say, you know, they'll come to you with their, their bigger problems with the corporation and the way it runs. Sure. And, and, and yeah. the most difficult part of this is first off, I am I'm not representing Marvel in that sense. Like obviously, you know, so I have to always be clear, like this is my opinion of this thing, but I'm coming from an informed place. So you could take it with a little bit more, you know, the, the, I've got a little more than just some dude off the street, which isn't to say that I'm infallible, which isn't to say that I know everything. And I've always been really clear about that, about the, the whether it's a comic making process or the finances or any of that stuff, that I'm figuring this stuff out. And what I try and do is say, hey, I learned some stuff. I can sort of tell you some things that you may not have realized. And in some cases, it's people who are really ticked off. And I think that they are looking for someone to vent to, for lack of a better term. And so I try and I've joked around. I was was joking about this with David, that it's like Internet Aikido. Like you're trying to redirect the momentum (laughs) to somewhere else, like to a different target. Like I'm trying to, okay, you're coming at me full bore and you're super pissed. And, okay, I'm just going to redirect that energy over here. And I'm going to answer a broader question about the industry or behavior or professionalism or something. And so whether or not you agree with this person, hopefully we all walk away with, with a little more knowledge or a little more respect or something. And I try really hard not to be 
Like if someone's coming at me in an insulting manner, I don't want to be insulting. Like occasionally I could be a little salty, like, you know, you didn't have to be such a prick about this question. <laughs> but most of the time I'm pretty flat about yes, it. Like are. I'm talking about a factual thing or I'm talking about a the nature of business that you may not realize. And that by its very nature, I think disarms a little bit of the acidic quality or the toxic quality of, of fan interaction that can sometimes come about. Um, and it was, you know, I went to New York and I had these people just professionals and fans who were very, very kind and were saying, Oh my gosh, you're so great. I love when you take these bastards down. And I'm like, am I taking them down? Like, I don't feel like that's my purpose or what I'm intending. What I'm intending to do is sort of say, look, I can see you got all this rage here. This actually ties into something else that you may not realize, whether that's the nature of how these stories are made or the nature of how editorial works. Or at the end of the day, this was a thing that, that happened even when I was at the Udon studio. You know, we they're still doing the, the Street Fighter comic series sure. with Capcom. And the Street Fighter fans are wonderful. And 99.9% of them, same thing with the Marvel fans, are wonderful and genuine and heartfelt and, and excited about about all the things. And occasionally you'd get someone who was super, super angry and felt very off put by what had been done by Capcom with the property or the way that they, they felt they were communicating with fandom. And so that was, I didn't know it at the time, was going to end up being formative in the way that I sort of learned about this stuff. Because you can't just, if they're coming at you all fire and brimstone and you go back at them the same way, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. You're, it, everyone's going to entrench themselves and going to hate the other person and, and assume the worst in everyone. And so my goal is sort of like, okay, you clearly are this passionate about this thing because you love it. Why would you spend all this time? Why would you exert all this rage if you didn't care? You do care. So if we're coming at this from the equal point of view that we both care, I care a great deal about my work. I care a great deal about Marvel Comics and the Avengers and all these things that, that we're talking about collectively. Then let's start from the basis of assuming that we both want to do a good job or you want me to do a good job and you want Marvel to do a good job. And then let's talk about how this actually gets done or the things that you may or may not realize about working on big stories, about working in a market that is more than just the direct market. You know what I mean? Working on comics that are being sold through all these different outlets and have different goals than just single issue print sales in North America through diamond distribution. That's right. You know, and and so if I can sort of broaden that topic and broaden your knowledge on it and not treat you in such a way that you walk away disrespected, then maybe we're having a dialogue. And worst case scenario, that person hates my guts still or hates my guts now brand new. But someone else reading it might go, oh, I never knew this is the way this aspect of the industry worked. You know, someone said to me, why do you? why would you answer a guy who's swearing at you and screaming over, you know, Tumblr anonymously? And I say, I'm answering them for them, but I'm really answering them for everyone else that's going to read the response because that's way more valuable and I can reach way more people. And ideally, yes, I would love for that person to have read it and change their opinion. But if not, everyone else at least can get a glimpse into something and sort of go, Oh, I didn't know things worked that way. Or, Oh, that that's a good way of putting it. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean, and I and I think specifically, 
regarding your own creator-owned books, someone uh, came to you and said, "Well, what do you know? You're just a middle-of-the-road writer. You're not. Right. You're not Grant Morrison. You're not, you know, Warren Ellis. You're just sure. a guy. You're a working-class guy." And I, and I'm glad. And again, you very politely uh, did point out that it's like, well, yeah, but if you look at the whole field of the books on the shelf, there are more of me. That there are of the Warren Ellis's and the Grant Morrison's and the Bendis's and people like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think your own survival in the creator-owned market is valuable information that, like you said, that Craig that Craig may not get. But uh, and again, right. I, that's my word, Craig. But but sure. that uh, that that your general Tumblr readership might understand the bigger picture. And again, I mean, that's I think it's this is what interests me in the macro sense, beyond talking to DC and Marvel creators, is this very fertile time when a lot of creator-owned books are out there uh, at, you know, having various levels of success and failures and understanding mm-hmm. all the parameters that go into making a book like this. Because, again, I do think a lot of people think they can walk in and say, well, I can do this. And, and it's well, important and to know what's what, so what crazy. you're dealing with and, and what... Beyond, like you said, beyond the direct market, the different book channels are out there, and what defines success? Right. And, you know, for me, on a creator-owned book, it's like, yeah, of course, I would love to make tons of money. I would love to sell ridiculous numbers of books. Who wouldn't? But at the end of the day, if we're building something, and I'm able to financially keep building something, and I, you know, with an amazing collaborator, and we both get to co-own it, and keep doing that. You know, in the case of Wayward, Stephen Cummings has made Wayward his full-time job for the last three years. He lives in Yokohama in Japan. He has a wife and two kids. And every day, pretty much, almost every weekday, he wakes up and he draws this comic. That's a success, man. Like in a market that has so many fluctuations and problems, Steve knows what he's working on for the next six, seven, eight months. Great. That's the way it should be, you know, for uh, ideally, uh, you know, a creator owned title. And so at the end of the day, yeah, I would love to, you know, we've been optioned for, um, you know, by Mong Entertainment and they want to make an anime of Fantastic. it. Fantastic. I really hope I really hope they go into production because, sure, then I can pay off my house and, you know, we get to travel a lot more to Japan and all kinds of amazing stuff. But at the end of the day, that's. That's gotta, that can't be the only goal, and that can't be the only way of measuring success. You know, you, you have to look and say, okay, there's obviously financial, the fiscal responsibility of being able to keep this title going, keep everyone paid, and, and so on. But there's also the creative fulfillment of doing it and, and keep doing it in a market that is really tumultuous at times. And so, you know, I'm trying to figure out every little angle. I'm trying to make sure that we keep our head above water, doing it to the best of our abilities. And if that requires understanding the differences between the way the trade paperback market is changing, the way that the digital market is changing, the way foreign, you know, uh, we're printed now in French and we've got more languages coming. And that is money that keeps the lights on and keeps the title going, you know, in a way that few other things do because all I have to do is we sign a foreign deal. I hand over the digital files. They're going to translate it. They're going to print it. They're going to advertise it. They're going to sell it. They're going to pay us royalties. Well, crap, that's pretty ideal. And they look at it as beneficial because they're not having to completely come up with brand new content. Doing translation and printing and advertising is cheaper than creating a book from scratch. 
Absolutely. Would you mind uh, going through uh, just some of the highlights of what you put out there in your article in terms of, you know, like you said, the digital market, the non, sure. even uh, when it comes to the, the North American market? Yes, there's the direct market, the Wednesday warriors that come to the comic book stores, but the much bigger market in terms of uh, the other book selling channels and also the digital channels. Right. Yeah. So, you know, in our particular case, and, and this is one of those other things where people were sort of like a couple of people contacted me and they seemed really to like get grousy about it because their situation's different. I never said everyone's situation is lockstep the Absolutely. same. The whole market must go the way my book is going. All I noticed was, that, you know, image sends us these things called accruals twice a year. We get this accounting statement. It's an Excel spreadsheet. And to be 100 percent honest with you. The vast majority of image creators, and I don't begrudge them at all, but they open that file. They look in the top right corner. Is it in green? That means there's profit. <laughs> They're going to send me this number. Right. How many digits is it? I hope it's five. You know? Right. Yeah. What, but, yeah. Did but, I make money this time? You know, every right. six months, or did we lose money on the book? Right. And those accruals are not for single issue sales. Those are for initial release. Those are for reorders of single issues. It's for trade paperback sales. It's for digital. And depending on your situation with image, it may include foreign licensing. Some people retain their foreign licensing and they individually negotiate those deals. Other people leave it to image. Um, and that's what those accruals mean. But beneath that number, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of uh, rows of data, sales data, um, storage data, money being spent uh, to to ship and to uh, print and to store these books. And so if you want to, you can spend a ludicrously inordinate amount of time if you're an obsessive compulsive person like myself and figure out what it means or track it over multiple accruals. And if you do that, maybe you can glean some extra information. It it may not be, you know, the the sword I'm looking for here. You know, it might not solve everything or it might just reinforce what you already thought you knew. But every so often I surprise myself. I go, oh, I did not know that we sell this many books through this channel or this much digital or this particular platform or that this corresponding Whatever, you know, when I went out and did a whole bunch of store signings, I can literally track and see a small boost in our trade sales in the aftermath of it or things like that. And so for me, I find it utterly fascinating to go through that data, particularly stuff that's more than just what we call, you know, the Comicron numbers, where they're inferring what they think the print sales are on you know, single issues in North America. But if I look at digital and if I look at trade paperbacks and what we found was the latest accruals for Wayward, but tracked back to our very first accrual in um, 2015, once we had a trade out, was that we are now selling, we're making way more money on trade paperbacks than we're making on single print issues. Um, we are selling more than half of our trade paperbacks through what we would consider non, um, you know, comic book store channels that we sell in bookstores better than we sell in comic book stores as far as trade paperbacks go that the digital market is continuing to grow and it's rippling off of uh, special sales and events that image is doing things like humble bundle deals where they give away our first book we can then track uh, a substantial increase in subsequent 
uh, trade paperbacks digitally because people got the first one, they're hooked, and they come back and they get the other That's ones. Uh, and so these things that are meant to, you know, what you hope will be outreach are working, that our digital sales, which is an additive sales market from everything that I've seen, it's an additive sales market. It's it's not taking away from the comic book stores, but it's just giving people more options. It's becoming, people are becoming comic book fans, whether or not they ever step foot into a store that they are sampling and they're trying uh, our book and through good word of mouth and, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's a changing market, I think, particularly for creator owned. Because the types of numbers that we need in order to survive are obviously a magnitude smaller than a huge corporate structure like a Marvel or a DC. And so if you can eke out those numbers, uh, you know, through these multiple channels put together, it doesn't matter where those numbers come from, whether it's bookstores, digital comic book store is foreign, sure. but the, the equation adds up to X, then you get to keep doing the book, right? <laughs> you know? And yet if you looked at just purely the only set of numbers that kind of get any public play, you would think that a certain number of books or a certain type of book is dead in the water. Yeah, and it's just yeah. – yeah, it's just not true. Well, th- and so if I can give people a little bit more of that knowledge and sort of say, look, there are tons of ways to do this. If you put all your eggs in that one basket, you could end up missing out. That all makes sense. And again, it's something that I've – Prior to your uh, article or, or post, I, uh, I I've heard others say that as well. And th- people have to remember too that Marvel and DC might consider canceling a book that in the direct market is only selling seventeen thousand, and even that number we mm-hmm. can't be sure of because the the sure. numbers we get from Diamond are not uh, actual sales. It's well, they're not meant for right, you. Right, they're for, at the they're end for of retail. Day, when you get exactly retail. yes. Yeah. So, and, and again, what they might consider canceling would be a huge windfall for individual creators who all they have to worry about is, as you say, cover your costs of paying the artists, storing the books and distribution, which again, you know, through image and stuff, thankfully, uh, is, is a way to do it that, uh, you know, doesn't cut. Well, you get a higher part, um, piece of that pie. And, and again, that's another reason why it's great that so many image creators are also savvy enough to say, yeah, let uh, DC and Marvel charge three ninety nine and four ninety nine and up for an issue. We're going to stick with three fifty because there's enough of that pie, and our piece of that pie is big enough that we can afford to, you know, keep things going and, and still make a really good profit. Yeah, I mean, and and that doesn't even count stuff like going to a convention and hand selling this book. There you go. You know, where I'm making. You know, I get the books, um, particularly if it's within my my complimentary copy numbers, I'm getting them for next to nothing and I'm selling them for full or near to full cover price. You know, that can be substantial sometimes as well, you know. And again, what I can do is I can sell them a volume one or a volume one and two and then they're jonesing for it and they go to their local comic book store and get three, four. So it's it's not something where I'm taking away an audience. I'm building an audience. I'm hand pitching the book to people at a con, and they wouldn't have even looked at that book on the shelf before. But now I can turn them into a fan because I can bring something that Amazon can't. I can bring something that Comicsology can't. I can bring something that retailers can't. I'm the creator of this work. I'm a, you know without trying to sound crass, I'm a unique experience. You know, you get to talk to the person 
that made this thing. And my, hopefully my enthusiasm turned you, you know, around to try it and then, and then, you know, build from there. I understand. And I also think, uh, you, yeah, you, you get that you're a brand and I, and I don't mean that in any, you know, I, I guess that's a crass way of putting it, but essentially it is. I mean, they're investing in your creativity. Right. And, and here's the thing is that, look, you know, Glitter Bomb is a very different book from Wayward. Yes. But the number of people who said, well, I like Wayward, I'll give this a shot because they trust that I'm making something that they know is of a certain quality. Sure. You know, that's that's a great feeling. There are people who come to me at conventions and they literally say, what do you have this year that you didn't have last year? OK, I'm buying one of each. And, you know, that's a kind of loyalty that speaks to the kind of, you know, that you build over years, that you build over a long period of time. And you have to, you have to invest in yourself and you have to work at it. And, you know, it's funny because there's a group of people who buy stuff from me at conventions who couldn't care less that I'm writing the Avengers. Like they're just not, not even on their radar. And it makes me laugh because of course, you know, to the general public, that's the prize, right? But at the end of the day, at some point in time, I will not be writing the Avengers, uh, you know, and at some point in time, I, I will not be writing for Marvel. And may that be a long way away from now. <laughs> but but, you know, on on that note, I need to have something. Sure. I need to have an audience that hopefully is going to come with me and be willing to go on the ride that I can continue to to provide to them. And so. I don't know. Again, I've, I've had conversations. I've had conversations with veterans of this industry about image comics or about creator owned. And they're not baffled. Like, it's not like I'm trying to teach them how to use, you know, like a, they're not horse and buggy and I'm trying to teach them how to use a car. But there's some element of that where they feel like I had a conversation with a, I don't want to use the name because I don't want them to feel sure. awkward about it, where they literally said, I can't believe how much promotion you do, I would never do that because I would leave that up to my publisher. And I said, well, then you're a fool because your publisher may or may not do that in the future. That's right. Well, and also, you know, and I've had this conversation, this has been an ongoing theme, the the prior generations getting to the top of the creative mountain was working for DC and Marvel. With sure. no thought of, of coming up with creator-owned things. And thankfully, right. the best thing that happened with the creation of Image was... And, and that's, you know, even when Kirkman... And that was well after Image had already been established and stuff. And when Kirkman in 2008 or nine was out there spouting his manifesto of stop working for the big two, start creating your own stuff, because that's where the real money is. That's where you can take your fandom and can, and continue to have that following beyond the day that comes when you're not writing the Avengers or Superman or whatever. And that's the thing that the, the older generations, that was the top of the mountain. And they didn't really ever think of, well, what would I create and how would I go about that? And also understanding the business end, not only, you know, doing the accounting and making sure that the thing's making a profit, but also going out and publicizing the thing. Well, yeah. yeah. And I mean, it does require a different set of yep. skills. Like you have to have the creative skills and you have to have some of the business yeah. savvy and, and the ability to say, I don't know this and I need help, sure. you know? Uh, and some people aren't used to that either, or they're used to having everyone else doing that for them rather than them having to be proactive and say, I don't know this. 
Um, and so it is a it is a different set of skills. And I get it. If you've been doing this for decades and you've never had to think about these aspects of the business, it can be a bit of a, a hard learning sure. curve. You know, I feel fortunate that when I got into this business, I, I made it in through, you know, with Udon and at more as a project manager and an art director and a guy who was seeing the numbers and the business end of it first. And so to me, uh, you know, I got to learn how to keep people on schedule, what a budget looked like, where those pitfalls can come into it and egos and difficulties because I was managing all these projects for Udon. I was doing creative services. So we were doing concept art for movies. We were doing design work for toys. We were doing, uh, you know, special projects for Marvel and all this sort of stuff. And so I cut my teeth on those things. And so when it came time to do my own books, when I did Skull Kickers in 2010, I could bring all those skills to bear. And so I was an unknown as a creative, but I was kind of a known quantity as a as a a business guy, for lack of a better term, and that those strengths suddenly became a real asset where I wasn't afraid to sort of roll up my sleeves and go, okay, oh, this is just press email stuff. All right, I can do that. Oh, this is interview stuff. I can do that. Like, cause I'd, I'd seen it all before I'd done it in that respect, you know, oh, this is what's going to be required for the budget. This is the amount of time this is what the artist says it's going to take, but I know it's really going to take this amount of time. So I'm going to add this buffer to the thing or whatever. And those are the types of things that, you know, I'll talk to uh, people who are embarking on their first creator owned project and they'll tell me their schedule and I'll be like, oh, that's never going to work because you think it's all going to run on time. You know, that, that someone said they're going to do it in a week and you gave them a week. Are you crazy? You know what I mean? Like, like, that's not how real life works, you know, and, and you've got to be able to massage the thing and, and work within a broader parameter. You know, our goal at Udon was always whatever fury was happening behind the curtain, the client thought we were perfect. You know, the client got this beautiful end sure. result. Uh, the most amazing aspect of that was we had an artist who was living in Australia. He still lives there. He's this guy, Jeffrey Cruz. Uh, he's phenomenal. Jeff, uh, his uh, nickname is Chamba. It's yeah. his art handle. Um, and so w- when we were really, really, really under the gun and a client came to us and said, like, we need this tomorrow kind of thing, I could call up Chamba and because he's whatever, 13, 14 hours difference, he'd literally just be waking up and I would go, okay, Chamba, I need you to work on this all day. And so he would work on it all day. But that would be the equivalent of our all night. Right. And so we could go to bed, wake up the next morning. He'd have something done. I give it to the client. They go, oh, my God, you guys work yeah, all night. I can't believe you turned it around so fast. Sure. Right. And so we look like miracle workers. <laughs> and I was just playing the I was playing the time zones. That's fantastic. Now, as someone who clearly understands how to put things out through image and luckily too, Eric seems to like your ideas. Uh, have you ever entertained crowdfunding for any projects or has there not been a need? What are your feelings in terms of possibly engaging in crowdfunding for a project? It's weird because I, I really find crowdfunding fascinating and I've supported a pretty stupid number of Kickstarters, uh, whether for friends or just things I thought looked really cool um, because I believe a lot in the model and I think it's phenomenal that people are able to circumvent a lot of the the gatekeepers and difficulties that that have been in place previously. Um, but I haven't taken much advantage of it. I have – this isn't crowdfunding per se. I have a Patreon. Sure. So, okay. and that well, it is crowdfunding a while actually. I think it is. It is. It is. I get, 
I always think of crowdfunding, I guess, terminology-wise, is like a, a specific project. Yes, I understand. Like I'm, I'm making a book. Yeah, or, yeah. You fund know, this book. Fund, yeah, kickstart right, this but, book. But Go I, fund you know, for this obviously, project. Patreon is is a form of crowdfunding, and I was really slow to to engage that because I was terrified that people were going to think I was panhandling equivalent. I, or I believe me, as a know, Patreon person, I know exactly what you mean. But the reason why I did it was – so I was putting these blog posts up all about how to make comics, how to break into comics, the economics of creator-owned comics. And you know, the deeper the accrual statements get and the crazier the bar charts get and uh, you know, the more questions I was answering, at some point in time, people were like, man, let me give you money. Sure. <laughs> I, can t- I know how long it takes to make these things and you're giving it all away and I'm having an aneurysm. These people contact me and say, I'm going to just PayPal you money. Will you just let me do this? And I was like, wow, weird. Okay, this isn't that hard. I will create an ancillary kind of Patreon. And I never want to lock the content away behind the wall. But what I'll do is I'll have different content. So the idea was I'll have an archive of my scripts and pitches. Once they're published, uh, I'll put them up there. And so for the price of a coffee, you can read a bunch of my scripts. So if you've always wondered what a script looks like and you don't have any examples of it or you just want to honestly just chip me – three bucks a month because you like me and you like what I do. This is a way for you to do that. You know, in an ideal world, I'd say go out and buy my comics, but some people, they, they just want to do that direct support. And so this is an outlet for people to do that. And all that money goes back into funding the creator owned stuff, paying the letterer or paying the colorist or whatever on my latest project. And it's a nice little extra for me. And hopefully then the one thing I want to make sure of is that I, made a Patreon that I could update almost seamlessly. The last thing I wanted to do was make a bunch of promises and I'd seen people do this before and then not be able to carry through on them. I didn't want to have to do like a live stream once a week or, you know, I'm going to mail out prizes or all those, those, those things you can fall into that sound like a great idea. And I probably could have doubled the amount that I have, but it would then become another job I that I that I just can't yeah. balance. So I said, okay, look, I strip my contact information off of a script. I PDF it. I put together a little paragraph, sometimes a little anecdote. Here's how this project happened. Here's a funny thing that happened while doing this project. Whoop, here's the script. It takes me 15 minutes to update once or twice a week. Great. That's the kind of thing that I can do near seamlessly with my current schedule and no one's going to feel like they're not getting what they were promised. And I feel like it's not an added stress to a schedule. And then people can give me a little bit of money for Sounds it. That's good. That's excellent, man. Now, you mentioned Glitter Bomb, and that is always my favorite of your creator-owned things. Oh, Absolutely, man. No, you really, I think, tapped onto a great idea from a horror standpoint. And unfortunately, there's some real-life <laughs> horror going on in terms of the oh, celebrity world. And I can only imagine, and, and really, I don't mean to, forgive me if you're listening, I don't mean to trivialize these, these terrible sure. things that are happening to, to women in the workplace. And it's not just in, in, in entertainment circles. No, I obviously. mean, when we, did the first, when we did the first miniseries last year, a big part of it was about you know, women being abused in Hollywood. And the main character of Farrah you know, was this character who was abused in Hollywood and, and was sort of trying to climb out of all the – that her, her career had been shut down by people who didn't want her to fight back, that didn't want her to speak her mind. Um, you know, and then we had these essays from Holly Rachel Hughes, yes. 
who had essays about her time in Hollywood as a producer being abused on set, being mistreated, being, you know, sort of uh, forgotten and cast aside by the Hollywood system. And so it's not her story, but there was very much notes of that that were punctuated throughout this, you know, horror story and this somewhere between a revenge fantasy and a tragedy. And, um, you know, it's this is going to be a weird sort of parallel. But when I did years ago, I did a thing with Skull Kickers where we did uh, a new number one every month for five <laughs> months. And we joked around. We were like, you're getting a new number one. And our sales jumped heavily <laughs> because of it. And I was just sort of like, God, this is so lowest common denominator crass. And we're doing it as a joke. And then people are really responding to it. And great for us, whatever. And people are like, man, that is real. And, and you know, uh, that that years later, a year and a half, two years later, it felt like every damn superhero book was rebooting sometimes <laughs> twice in six months. And I was like, man, it was just a joke. We were doing this for entertainment, not we weren't pointing the way. What are you people doing? And not that it's the exact same, but this weird thing of like, look, I know this thing is happening in Hollywood. Good God, guys, you didn't have to. I didn't even I'm freaked out at how, you know, deep the rabbit holes going yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. That it feels prescient and not, not obviously by any sort of plan. Certainly. And our, our news story arc has got a, a media angle tied into it as well. And people's frustration with how they feel the media can manipulate the message and all this kind of stuff. And again, it feels very timely, uh, even though this stuff was being produced many months ago. Um, but that's, you know, where people's heads are at and where my head was at when I was writing it. And so it's, it's worked out in a creepy sort of way, uh, where we seem to be tapping into something that people are talking about in the here and now. And, and it, yeah. um, and it, it, go yeah. ahead if you had more, forgive it. No, no, it's just, um, it's, it's really weird cause it's such a different book than any, everything else I'm doing. And honestly, one of the toughest things for me this year, I've had a really phenomenal year, you know, obviously Avengers and wayward and things are going very well. Even my teaching job stuff's going Terrific. great. And one, one of the toughest things for me has been tapping into that emotional quality of frustration and anger and sort of saying, no, I'm pissed and I'm going to put that down on the page, uh, you know, in this book. And so when I was working on Glitterbomb, the fame game, one of the things I had to do is sort of like uh, kind of work myself up to it, like like get permeate myself, like marinate in this media morass and then just walk out of it and go, oh, now I got the fuel. All right. You're all going to get a face full of this. You yeah, know? I get it. No, and, I totally get it. Well, yeah, see, you're a nice guy anyway. So, I mean, I, you oh, know, absolutely. Well, that's – no, but I get – you know, that's funny because I always felt – uh, and this is going to sound so lame to younger people, but there was a time when Phil Collins seemed to have an edge, and it was because he was really <laughs> going through a lot of personal problems and things, right. and then did divorce, got a new wife, and the edge went away. And he, and he, you know, that's when we got all the sappy late, you know, mid to late eighties, and and or into him doing Tarzan and all that stuff. The AM, yeah, 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 exactly, man. And believe me, you know, us old Genesis fans are like, what happened to Phil, man? You know, he used to be great at it. You know, it's weird. So it's like I, I want to try and keep a little bit of that. It's weird. It's like keeping a little venom in a sure. jar and just being like, hello, hello, old friend. I you understand. Know? Absolutely. It's, you need some Mr. Weird, Hyde right? in there, man. Absolutely. Well, and, and so one of the things it's like, okay, you know, so I'm doing fine, but it's not like the world's in, in great shape. 
And so you can sort of say, all right, look at all these bigger, broader things. Look at these frustrations. And, you know, empathy is such a huge part of storytelling. And so when I'm trying to tap into some of this stuff and say, okay, this character feels this. I have felt this. I have been there. I have been frustrated, angry, lost, afraid. You know, these are the things that you're trying to do. It it is a bit like acting, you know, in that regard. And so you're trying to tap into those old feelings um, one of the things I did early on, I was really, I was on the internet quite early. I had an old live journal okay. nice. and I had, uh, you know, kind of like the equivalent of a digital diary and there were public posts and then there were private posts and those private posts were just somewhere for me to sort of pour out stuff that in my frustrations and I, and thankfully it's all archived. So I kind of went back and I read that stuff and some of it, it's hard to recognize. Like I read it and I go, Oh, that was, that was an angry that kid. Guy? Whoa, yeah. shit. Yeah. Uh, but, but really helpful too, because I look and I go, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. That was weighing really heavily on you. Oh, those sorts of thoughts. And now having the distance to be able to see it with a bit more clarity and go, where's the fuel there? Like what, what aspects can I tap into and really, you know, reinvigorate within myself and sort of say, that's, that's that, you know, teenage angst, right? When you get right down to it, that's those frustrations and feelings, you know, even teaching, um, you know, I'm teaching at, at Seneca college here in Toronto. Uh, I love it. I love being a teacher. I love interacting with these students. And every so often I'll get a student come into my office and they pour their guts out about fears of the future and fears of what they're going to do with their life. And, and it, it, it shocks my system like like ice water. Like I go, oh, yeah, I was terrified of that stuff. And, and obviously the empathy is so much easier to tap into because I can remember it and I talk to them and I help. You know, I'm not their psychologist, so I can only do so much. But try and give them some reassurances or at least, you know, what they can do about it in the here and now and what is sort of out of their control. But those sorts of experiences are really formative for me when I go, okay, I'm writing this teenage character. She is being put through the emotional meat grinder. What's the end result? You know, and the same thing with Wayward. You know, those characters are teenagers going through these really difficult times and frustrations and and feeling like their lives have no – like they can't grab the wheel of their life. Yeah, Yeah, life life is not in their control. Yeah. Right. And, you know, in the case of Wayward, also huge supernatural stuff. And in the case of, you know, Glitter Bomb, grotesque supernatural stuff. But um, but that there's still a grain of truth there and that that, you know, that's all important stuff that we we can tap into. And and it does, um, you know, I, when we sort of time back to the thing we talked about with the Tumblr stuff, a lot of the times when I'm answering someone's question, a lot of it's about empathy. Like a lot of the statements I start with are kind of agreement, even if they say something radical or strange or frustrated. I go, look, I know what it feels like to not be heard or I know what it feels like to a lot of people when they get frustrated about breaking into the business. I'm like, man, I have been there. Like I have been I've been kicked off projects. I've you know missed out on opportunities. I've felt that, man, my time is is wasting away. And what am I doing with my life kind of stuff? And I still get pangs of that. That that unfortunately will never change. That's part of the creative process. But let's start from this common ground, and then we can do something 
you know, answer a question or, or dig a little deeper. Well, you got a good handle on uh, perspective, Jim. And I, and, and, and it comes through and I, and I'm glad, and I, and you're a good, unique voice. I'm glad you're out there both, uh, from a fiction standpoint and also your willingness to share your experiences from the business end of comics. And, uh, that's, that's really important. So it's always great to talk to you and hear your point of view. So thanks, man. You know. One of those things where I was at New York Comic Con and I was talking to other people, I love hearing about what they're doing, you know, on their creator sure. own stuff because I, I want to know what Absolutely. other people are up to. I want to know are they seeing a similar situation, similar trends? Justin Jordan and I, we commiserated like crazy at uh, New York because he was saying to me about, you know, the way certain things were selling or his digital. And oh man, it's it's utterly fascinating stuff for you know, number nerds like us. No, I, I understand, man. And I do the same thing with other podcasters and, uh, try to get that perspective as well and find out what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? And you, you, you never stop learning. And I can tell, and again, as a yeah. teacher, you clearly get that as well. So it doesn't surprise me knowing your own background. Oh, thanks. Absolutely. No, keep up the great work, dude. I honestly, I'm, I thank you. And I'm glad I uh, am on your uh, mail chain as well, because beyond uh, getting PDFs of, of uh, Wayward and Glitter Bomb, I'm, I'm, you know, again, you kind of share what you're thinking about as you make this stuff. And I think, again, I think it's important not not only for other creators, but also, again, uh, for, for readers of, of your stuff. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you are available as you are and, and, again, handling it in the right way to diffuse uh, some of the frustrations that people have out there. Thanks, man. I think, I, you know, my, my wife and I talk about this and she's, to be 100% honest with you, she's a little concerned about next year. She's like, you know, if the Avenger stuff goes really well, this will be kind of next level. Like, we don't know how, like, how big is it go? Like, what happens from here? Hopefully things, you know, bigger and always better. But what does that look like? You know, and I've had these weird moments where guys like, you know, Bendis or, or Dan Slott or people like that have reached out to me. And one of my first things is like, okay, so how do I brace for impact just in case, like what, what can go well and what can sure. go wrong? And, and cause I don't know, cause I've never had to deal with it on this sort of level. And even the questions I'm getting on the Tumblr, you know, yeah, there's a bunch of Avengers centric one. And then there's this other sense of like, people are treating me like I'm now, you know, a company man or I'm in, I'm on the in, and I'm just like, I don't feel like that. I mean, I guess obviously I'm working with Mark Wade and I'm doing the Avengers. I can't really say like I'm some indie guy anymore, but I still have that scrappy feeling. If that oh. makes sense. No. Yeah. And again, I think yeah, uncharted waters, man. Well, again, every experience, even the best advice can't completely prepare you for the things that you guys are going to have to face. But I think, again, I think you're, you're coming from a foundation of understanding the game, in in a lot of aspects, so and and also Thanks, yeah, and you're keeping your ears and eyes uh, open for for more uh, information that will guide you as you go further. So no, I, I'm I'm really glad, and and again, I appreciate you coming back and sharing with us as no you problem. do, because I know that uh, listeners are always interested and should go to your Tumblr and and continue to uh, uh, you know invest in the dialogue there. And uh, yes, yeah, support your Patreon as well. If uh, people are interested in writing and stuff, I mean, there's there's good content there to have. The the Nyquil is kicking in clearly. That's uh, all good. No worries. I'm, it's all a blur right now. That's right. I will leave you to rest. No, no. Thanks, man. I I really appreciate the conversation tonight and uh, continued success. All the best. Smart guy. Always enjoyed talking to Jim Zub. 
Uh, we will continue these conversations into 2018, and I'm really glad we had a second conversation this year. Uh, certainly deserves it, given his advancement through Marvel. Everybody's worried about Marvel. You know, I mean, obviously, Axel Alonso steps down, C.B. Sabolsky taking over as editor-in-chief. Um, you know, uh, I, I got news for you. C.B.'s a pal, and I look forward to uh, our conversation on Word Balloon with him as an editor. We have been meaning to talk for years, and literally at San Diego, shared an elevator ride and some moments in the lobby at the Omni and uh, talked about how, I'm like, C.B., I really want to get you. And he's like, hey, you know, they got, you know, I'm living in Shanghai, and I'm all around the world and all this. Looking for talent for Marvel, so you got to catch me when I'm standing still. Well, luckily, uh, he'll be uh, stuck in New York now as editor-in-chief, and uh, I, I look forward to him standing still long enough to, uh, for us to uh, have a new conversation and, and one we can share on, on the podcast. But I think Marvel's in great hands. I, I, CB's really such a nice guy, and I think represents fresh ideas. He's been uh, really combing the world for new talent, literally, for Marvel and uh, I think he's got that same kind of good editorial eye that, frankly, uh, guys like Axel Alonso also had and Joe Casada before him. And um, I- I'm shrugging now because I think it's a great hire and, and a very smart move uh, with the uh, leaving of Axel Alonso. So, uh, I, I th- again, you know, I know maybe sometimes I come off like a, cheer- a Marvel cheerleader, which is ironic because I am really more of a DC guy when it comes to my reading. But uh, that said, it's, I'm, I'm the mirror image of Dan DiDio. You know, Dan grew up a Marvel guy and ended up running DC. I'm not running anything, but I have to say I, am, I, I was more of a DC reader and still am than I am a Marvel reader per se. All that said, I, I do like, you know, the ambitions that I think Marvel has tried to do. And I do think Marvel is trying to be more inclusive with their hirings. And uh, I think they, again, it's never enough, but I do think that they continue to move in the right direction. And uh, I think the hiring of C.B. Sobolski will lead to more uh, interesting uh, new discoveries of talent and ability for the Marvel brand. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think Jim is a guy that represents uh, a good new voice in Marvel. I understand he's a white guy. But that said, um, we do need creative people running the books. And I, and I really do think his writing uh, is up to the task of some of these big titles that Marvel has. And, you know, again, Marvel, you know, has a lot of, a lot of wonderfully ta- talented people out there that are uh, contributing to the books and the stories and only making things better. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of Word Balloon. It was brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. As I said, thank you, League, for your wonderful support. Um, if you want to subscribe to Word Balloon, you can do so by going to uh, wordballoon.com and clicking on the Patreon ad or going to patreon.com slash wordballoon. And uh, if you feel like uh, what you get from Word Balloon justifies a subscription and you want to help support the cause, that's terrific. I can't thank you enough. So thank you for the support, League of Word Balloon listeners, as we uh, go to the end of the month. And uh, I thank you for your uh, continued patronage uh, through Patreon of uh, keeping this podcast going. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. One of my favorite books uh, from last year was Superman American Alien. It was a pleasant surprise from Max Landis, Nick Dragata, Tommy Lee Edwards, Joel Jones, Jay Lee, Francis Manipole, Jonathan Case, Jock, uh, my buddy Matthew Clark uh, contributed a great Easter egg uh, snapshot of a Clark Kent desk. But uh, this really was kind of uh, Clark Kent on his finding himself journey uh, of uh, becoming Superman 
and uh, had some great interludes. It's uh, 45% off of the trade, $10.99. I hope this sticks in the Superman canon for quite some time because really I thought those, uh, those stories were really a good part of explaining the Superman mythos. You can get Star Wars, Darth Vader, Dark Lord, Sith, Trade Paperback Volume 1, Charles Soule and Giuseppe Camuncoli and Jim Chung uh, doing uh, some amazing art. Uh, it's a Jim Chung cover, but uh, it's 144 pages, and it collects uh, Dark Vader uh, issues 1 through 6 from uh, 2017. 50% off. It's just $8.99. You can also get Batman and Robin by Pete Tomasi and Pat Gleason. Uh, the Superman team currently, they did an amazing job on Batman and Robin. Uh, Bruce and Damien finally together, and uh, it was a terrific run. This uh, omnibus collects uh, Batman and Robin from uh, 20 through 22, and then we had the new 52 restart of uh, Batman and Robin from 0 through 40. Uh, three annuals of Batman and Robin, Robin Rises Omega, Robin Rises Alpha, and a story from Secret Origins number 4. So this omnibus is 1,216 pages, 45% off. It's $68.75. There's some great books waiting for you with great prices at InStockTrades.com. Check it out for yourself. Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon today. Happy Thanksgiving. I hope you enjoy the holiday. We'll be back next week with uh, more great conversations in the Word Balloon style. I've got some people penciled in. Bendis and I keep trading Texas. I know I'm like teasing but I just want to keep you updated because I know everyone's going, all right, when, when are you going to talk to Bendis? When are you going to talk to Bendis? Well, you know, it's the holidays. He's entertaining. Uh, I'm working through the holidays uh, at my radio job, soaking up the extra hours if I can. But I'll, uh, I'll have time for family and stuff on Thanksgiving. It's going to be great. And, again, thank you very much for being on the ride and uh, hopefully enjoying these great conversations I try to bring to you each week on Word Balloon. More coming in the days ahead uh, some really fun ones, and I think uh, also very relevant to what's going on, not only in comics, but also the world today. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.